Now, uh, when I moved to Philadelphia, one of the things I quickly became obsessed with was the skyline of the city. Because I didn't grow up anywhere near a skyline of anything. If I went into any city, it was Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh is actually smaller than Northeast Philadelphia by 100,000 people. You'd have to combine Pittsburgh and Erie to get Northeast Philly. So when we moved to Philly, I was just obsessed with the skyline. We would drive down 95 towards Center City, and I probably caused a lot of accidents rubbernecking. I was just like, whoa, look at all those buildings. They're so tall, and why is there a guy on top of one of them? Which was City Hall where Billy Penn or William Penn stands. But I just, even if you read, if you watch... You don't read Rocky. If you watch the Rocky movies, where he, that famous scene where he runs down Broad Street, does anyone know what street that was? It's a collection of streets, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like a 25-mile run if he actually went from where he started to where he finished. But where he runs up the steps to the art museum and he turns around and he jumps. And the biggest building in that scene is City Hall. That's before the Comcast Center was built, before anything else was built. You guys know that they're building another second Comcast building down there. Um, I'm still waiting for them to have reliable internet. You know, they're building like the fourth tallest building in America. Let me just get, let me just be able to download something at four in the afternoon. But anyway, uh, I love the skyline and I was obsessed with it. I still to this day, I like every now and then to Google like Philadelphia skyline and just look at the pictures of it. All these People are getting drones now and flying the drones through the city and getting beautiful uh, shots and videos of things. And for the longest time, and I've grown up in Pennsylvania most of my life, I thought, when I thought of Philadelphia, I thought of the buildings. You know, the biggest buildings in the state, the biggest city in the state. Uh, when I thought of the city, I thought of the buildings. But now that I live here, I think of the city differently. It is the buildings, but there's more to Philly than the buildings. There's the people. The people of Philadelphia comprise the city of Philadelphia. And without the people, you would just have a bunch of big, empty buildings. The people make the city. And when I think of the people of Philadelphia, I mean, we are a totally unique creature in God's creation. The people of Philadelphia are very different than, the, say, the people of New York or the people of Boston or the people of the South. The people of Philly are just unique. Um, you know, I, like I think of Rocky, the most famous Philadelphian. He's not even real. You know who the f- most famous New Yorker is? Little Orphan Annie. Oh, you tough New Yorkers. Your most famous citizen is a fictional, curly-haired ginger girl. Which I married one of, but and produced one of. But, uh, you know, Philly's totally unique. And then... There's the buildings and this people, but there's also just the culture of Philly. Philly has its own feel to it, its own kind of vibe. And many of you have lived here longer than I have, so I would love to hear from some of you. You're going to have to speak loud because you have like 30 fans on right now. What are some of the things that are unique to the culture of Philadelphia? The Liberty Bell. All right, so then with that, the whole birthplace of the nation and the freedom and stuff. Okay, what else? Sorry, the love, the, love, uh, the love statue in Love Park. Okay. And the City of Brotherly Love is the nickname. Go ahead. Cheese steaks. Yeah, that was the first one at Wiss. That was the first one they said. Pretzels. 
Philly Jesus. Yes, we have our own false Jesus. Uh, Diana. Cream cheese, Philadelphia cream cheese. Okay, also obsession with food, apparently, is on that list. Sammy, go ahead. The fans, the sports fans, right? Don't know any better. Yeah, when I moved to Philly in 2008, the Phillies won the World Series, and I thought, what a great sports town. They're always winning championships. Yeah, I was wrong. They win them about as often. I think Cleveland is the Philly of the Midwest. I was just in Cleveland last week. It's the Philly of the Midwest. Uh, they don't win nothing. They're just kind of a blue-collar, you know, gritty town. Anything else? Oh, go ahead, Jane. Football? We love football in Philly. It's a, probably the number one sport, most loved sport. Christine. The William Penn Curse. Right. Uh, they put William Penn on top of City Hall. And the year that we surpassed his height with buildings, we stopped winning championships, right? Because we, we cursed ourselves, which I don't actually think we did. But uh, And then, in 2008, someone got on top of the Comcast Center and put a little tiny William Penn statue, and then we won the World Series. I guess. So superstitious and bad theology. Anything else? Okay. Okay. Uh, Pajama pants all day long. Um, I could come up with quite a few, actually. Uh, there was just an event in Mayfair called Dinner in Pajamas, where you're supposed to like wear your pajamas to dinner. And I was like, don't we do that all day, every day in this town? I think if you want to fund the school system, tax pajama pants outside of the home, we would have the finest school system in America. All right. Um, well, I bring that up because I want to illustrate that there's more to a city than the buildings. You know, the buildings in Philadelphia, I love them. They're beautiful. I think it's a beautiful skyline. I love looking at it from Camden uh, over the, uh, the aquarium over there. It's, I think, just think it's an awesome shot of the city. I love driving down past the buildings on, buildings on 95, but there's more to the city than the buildings. There's the people and there's also the culture. And I say that because in Nehemiah, we're about to kind of make a transition in the book because for the first six chapters the main idea has been we got to rebuild this wall rebuild this wall uh, we got to rebuild the physical edifice of the city and that's been the focus for six chapters it's you know how do we build it where do we get the resources what kind of opposition are we going to face and all this stuff but now we're going to see in verse one of chapter seven it says now the wall was finished or the wall was rebuilt so the building the physical building is done, and Nehemiah is now about to start rebuilding the people and the culture of the city. And we're just going to look at two verses today about how Nehemiah begins the process of rebuilding the city, meaning the people and the culture. So if you can throw that, uh, it's just one slide today, very simple. This is actually one of the most simple passages I've ever preached, probably. Would you mind standing with me and we read this as a group? Great, thank you. I'll kick us off. We're going to read this as a group. Now when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani my brother and Hananiah the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. All right, great job. You guys can have a seat. 
Now, this is really simple. Don't overthink this. Nehemiah, they finished, says in the very beginning of verse 1, the wall was rebuilt, okay? They finished rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah now, if you read verses, uh, cha- all of chapter 7, he's beginning to appoint leadership in the city. And he selects this man named Hanani to be in charge of the whole city of Jerusalem. Okay, so I don't, you could almost call him like the mayor of Jerusalem or something like that. He selects Hanani uh, and, and he puts him in charge of Jerusalem, it says in verse 2. It says Hanani was his brother. I don't know if he was his actual literal, literal brother, uh, meaning that he had the same parents or if it's just a close relative and someone that he was close to. But he, he appoints Hanani. I want to focus on Hanani and not Hananiah today. Don't get confused with those two. They're two different people. Uh, but he appoints Hanani. And this is very simple. Again, don't overthink this. There's two character traits that Nehemiah points out about Hanani in this passage. In verse 2, this is a, like a homemade sermon. There's two character traits that Hanani had that qualified him for leadership. He says he was a faithful man. And that he feared God more than many. That's simple. Two main things that set Hananiah apart and qualified him for this area of leadership. He was faithful and he feared God. Those even start with the same letter, guys. That should be easy to remember. I didn't even have to stretch it or come up with an acronym. I could call this the two F's of leadership or something like that. But if if I start saying F words, I'm probably going to get fired. So uh, he was faithful And he feared God. Those two things qualified him to be put in charge of Jerusalem. Nehemiah made the call of who he was going to put in charge of Jerusalem. And I have a feeling that Nehemiah, being the the great leader that he was, was probably watching during the whole 52 days of rebuilding and saying, who's worthy? Who are the leaders? Who steps up? Who rises above? What's the cream of the crop here in the city? And he selected hand and eye. So he was faithful. All right, so faithful. That word faithful that's used is, uh, is uh, well, I forget what it is in Hebrew. I had it memorized during worship, and now I forget. In Hebrew, it means firm, true, reliable, or stable. Firm, true, reliable, or stable. That's what faithful means in Hebrew. So, reliable. I love the word reliable because that's often what I think of with faithful. Can I rely on a person? If I ask them to do something, are they going to do it? If they say they're going to do something, are they actually going to do it? Reliability is probably one of the most important relational uh, pieces of equity that you can have. And no one is going to value your word if you don't value your word. You understand that? Nope. I mean, you teach people how much to value your word by how much you value it. So faithful is the opposite of another F word, which is flaky. You guys know what flaky means? It's kind of unreliable, inconsistent, flighty. Uh, I really hate flakiness. I don't hate flaky people. I just don't like flakiness as a character trait. Um, and I have, a do- I have kind of, I don't know if I invented this, but I, for my own use, have this phrase, filly flaky. Uh, you know, I'll say a person is filly flaky. 
I've never had so many meetings where I've been stood up or canceled. I have a whole thing on my calendar for all my canceled meetings. I would, I would, I'm not even joking. 40% of my meetings, no one, the person doesn't show up. I just bring a book, you know, that's, or I, or I groom myself in the mirror, which is why I look this way. But faithful is the opposite of flaky. All right, reliable is the opposite of unreliable. And Hananiah qualifies himself by being faithful. And Jesus said that if you're faithful with little things, then you will be faithful in big things. And I would paraphrase that and say, until you're faithful with little things, you won't be faithful with big things. And for the most part, a good leader won't give you the opportunity to try a big thing until you've proven yourself on little things. So faithfulness, steadfastness, three ways that you can increase your faithfulness. I'm always looking for ways to increase my faithfulness. Number one, have focus. Have focus. If your vision is too broad, you'll be all over the the field of vision. You'll be all over the spectrum. Have focus on the things that God has assigned you to. Have focus on the things that give you you life and give you uh, vitality. Uh, If you can focus, you can be faithful. Second is the ability to prioritize. You have to know what the priorities are in your life and what the priorities are not because you're going to get pulled in a thousand different directions and you're going to have to stack your priorities by you know, the, the most important, the second most important. You may never get to the bottom of the list of unimportant things and that's fine because you have limits in your life. And you can't do everything. I want to teach you a new word. Uh, well, it might not be new to some of you. Repeat after me. This, this is an important word you need to learn. No. Okay, good. All right. Thank you, Pat. No, Pastor Jim. It's a phrase I hear often. Uh, it is important for you to know how to say no and when to say it and to whom to say it. Because you're going to get pulled in a thousand different directions. And let me just give you a tip, and you might already know this. If you show any capacity for leadership, you're going to get pulled in 2,000 directions. If you're even a little bit good at leading, people are going to swarm to you and say, do this, do this, do this, do this. You're going to have to learn how to say no to things. You're going to have to prioritize. This is something I've been learning with my coach. I I have probably about three coaches, actually, that older men that are in ministry and trying to train me on how to be a better pastor. One of them is Terry Smith, who has been here and preached. He's our district superintendent. And he taught me earlier in the year, or helped me figure out how to say no to things. And I had to create this priority. This, it's five questions I ask myself. Every time I get an opportunity to do something, I have five questions I have to ask. They're written down, but one of them is, does this in any way, shape, or form relate to True Vine? Does this in any way, shape, or form relate to my personal calling in life? Is this a kingdom thing? You know, is this, is this going to advance the kingdom of God? Does this give me life or suck life out of me? And then there's a fifth question, which I don't remember, but I have it written down. I, anytime anyone asks, can you do this or do that? I go through those five questions. If I can't answer yes to at least three of them, I say no. I just politely 
find a way to say no, and then I give them either Luis's phone number or Chris's phone number, and they call them. And that, I say that jokingly, but that is real. Both Luis and Chris have got preaching opportunities this year because of places I said no to and sent them, and they did a great job. Uh, I might not get any opportunities after they preach on my uh, places. So, uh, so prioritizing, and I would encourage you to have some sort of system in your, in your life where you figure out what do I say yes to and what do I say no to. And then thirdly, living with margin in your life. You have to have flexibility and wiggle room in your life because no matter how well you plan your life, there's going to be surprises. And if you have 24 hours of a day planned with activity, there's going to be a surprise someday and it's going to throw you off. And if you ever have a kid, there's going to be a thousand surprises. And it goes up exponentially based on how many kids you have, how many surprises are in your life. The older you get, I think the more surprises you get in your life. So you cannot play in all 24 hours of your day. You need to leave wiggle room in your life. You need to leave margin, flexibility, because if you don't, you're going to have the first emergency that comes up, you're going to have to bail on someone. And you're going to be found to be somewhat unreliable. I cannot stress enough having margin and flexibility in your life. It'll make it way more fun. So that's what faithfulness, that's the faithfulness that uh, Nehemiah was referring to. Then also fearing God. It says that Hanani feared God more than many men. Uh, Fearing God is important. It's actually oftentimes in the Bible, fearing God is contrasted with fearing man. You cannot fear both at the same time. You either fear God or you fear man. You don't fear both. The fear of God, it says in Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have the fear of God, then you're probably a fool, according to Proverbs. Because the opposite of a wise man is a fool. If you lack in the fear of God, you're going to have an excess in foolishness. And so the fear of God is a good thing. And I'm going to borrow a little bit from a guy named Francis Chan, who some of you will have uh, had this conversation in our discipleship group on Tuesday nights. But, you know... We think about God in the Old Testament smiting people, right? Like, you know, people getting swallowed up by the earth or plagues and stuff like that. We think that's how God things, did things in the, New, in the Old Testament. But hey, it's the New Testament now. It's the covenant of grace. Everything's fine. And then you read like Ananias and Sapphira getting struck dead because they did not have the fear of God, really, is what that boils down to. They got struck dead because they didn't have a fear of God. You guys know what, how what Herod Antipas, I think it's Herod Antipas, died in the book of Acts? He was giving a speech, and he did not give glory to God. He took glory for himself. And it says he dropped down dead, and he was eaten by worms right in front of everyone. That's in the New Testament, by the way. The, co- the grace covenant, 1 Corinthians 11, if you, if you don't consider communion... Uh, seriously enough, it says that many of you will fall asleep, which is a euphemism for die. This is, the, this is after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended. So the fear of God is still a very real concept, even in the New Testament. I don't want anyone to walk around afraid that God's going to zap them and, and smite them. I don't want you to walk around feeling that way because I think you'll be, that's not how Jesus intended you to live. 
But I still think you should, you should understand that he could. I don't think he will, because I think Jesus took your punishment, but you just need to understand that he could, and that he has every right to. And it's only because of his love for you and me that he hasn't zapped every single one of us already. So that's the fear of God, um, and it's contrasted with the fear of man. The fear of God is a good thing. The fear of man is a bad thing, because the fear of man, especially if you're a leader, listen to me, those of you that feel called to leadership, if you're a leader and you have the fear of man, you're just going to try to make everybody happy. What does this person need? And what does that person want? What can I do for this person? And you're going to stretch yourself so thin you'll never make anybody happy, including God. The fear of man serves out of fear and not because they love other people. And the fear of man is actually, stick with me here, the fear of man is actually a political spirit. And politics are not limited to just government. How many of you have politics at work? Right? These guys know. Right? You go out, you got on the playground during recess, and there's that guy, right? Yes, he's got the good slide. Right. So politics exist outside of the governmental sphere. There's politics at work. I hate to say it, but there's even politics at church. And the worse, I should say, the more politics, the worse the church gets. There's politics on your neighbor, in your neighborhood, on your block. It doesn't necessarily mean anyone has a position they were voted into, but they still have some sort of power. And you have to please the person that has the power. You have to cajole and get in and, and be their buddy and, and say what they need to hear so that they're on your side. And then you go to this person and you kind of conspire and say what they need to hear. And you just make sure you have all your alliances in order. That kind of politics does not exist only in government, although it exists a lot in government. Uh, but that, the, the political spirit is a, is a spirit that is afraid of man and has to win the favor of man in order to stay in power, whereas the fear of God wants to win the favor of God to stay in power. Do you understand the difference? So this is why it's important for Hananiah. If he's going to be put in leadership and he's going to have at times up to a million people telling him what to do. He needs to fear God and not man. Because there's really only one person he's going to answer to, and that's God. So it's important that he doesn't fear man, but that he fears God. Let me wrap up with two things. Jesus perfectly exemplified these two character traits, faithfulness and the fear of God. We know that Jesus feared God because Jesus beheld God more than anyone else. I mean, that's the key. If you want to know how to fear God, get a better picture of God. You know, read passages about what God is like and understand God. Jesus also was faithful in every tiny area of his life. We, we know that Jesus didn't ever sin. So Jesus didn't say, okay, well, I'm happy to just generally fulfill my calling in life, but in every opportunity... In every decision, he chose to be faithful. When he could have made bread out of stones and no one was looking, he chose instead to be faithful. When he could have taken a shortcut and worshipped Satan and got authority uh, on heaven and earth, which I'm not even sure that was a real option, uh, he chose instead to be faithful. In every opportunity, as a child, when he hung out with prostitutes, when he could have had a thousand angels come pluck him off the cross, 
In all of those areas, he chose instead to be faithful, even though it cost him his comfort. And because of that, he perfectly exemplified these two character traits in leadership. And then lastly, I think that Nehemiah selected Hanani, who displayed these two traits. I think there's, there's a reason he selected Hanani. Because the leader sets the culture of the community. And if Hanani is faithful and Hanani fears God, the people of the city will be faithful and the people of the city will fear God. If this is the kind of leader that Nehemiah appoints, he can expect that this is the kind of community that will raise up over time. That if, if the leader values faithfulness and the leader values the fear of God, the people will learn from that and it'll trickle down over time. Leadership is all about setting the culture of where you're planted. Whether it's at work, school, neighborhood, church, or anything else, a leader is someone who creates culture, not rules. I want that to be a phrase for us. I've mentioned it in the past. Create culture, not rules. Okay, so um, I'm not going to get into that because I don't want anyone to die. So, but, but that is important, and you need to understand that creating culture is something that every leader is called to do. And that comes not through a, uh, a list of rules that you have to follow. It comes through relationships. It comes through values. It comes through vision. It comes through the way you treat other people. So Jesus perfectly exemplified it. I think Nehemiah was helping to set the culture of Jerusalem when he appointed a leader who was like Hanani. So let me ask you this. And I've asked this before. How many of you are called to leadership? Would you mind raising your hand real quick if you think you're called to leadership in some area of your life? All right. So listen, these two things, faithfulness and the fear of God, are essential to leadership in the kingdom of God. They actually might not get you anywhere in the world. But in the kingdom of God, those are great tracks to run on. Faithfulness and the fear of God. So I want to pray, and then I have to explain something after I pray. I want to pray for us that God would develop those two things in those of us that are called to be leaders. Faithfulness and the fear of God. Once I pray, we're going to do something a little different today, somewhat caused by the heat. We're supposed to take communion today. In our Tuesday night discipleship group, we've been talking about communion and just, I guess, I kind of sense like making sure we don't do it out of ritual, but because we do it because it's an ordinance that Jesus said for us to do. So we are going to take communion. We're going to do it a little differently. I have communion actually set up in the house. We always eat in the house. So we're, after I pray, I'm going to dismiss us. If you need to go, you can go. I'm not going to chase you down. But if you would like to stay and take communion with us, just head right over to the house, find a seat, and we're going to take communion before we get the kids. All right, so don't draw this out too long because my wife is up there and I like my bed. I don't want to sleep on the couch no more. So I'm going to pray for us, and then if you want to take communion with us, it's going to be a little more intimate this way. We're going to be tightly packed, but it is air-conditioned. We're going to head over to the house do it there. Then you're welcome to stick around with us, hang out, eat, which is actually a little closer to what first century communion was like anyway.
So let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you demonstrated perfect faithfulness to the Father's plan for your life, that there is no level of ambition or fear that shook you off of that. And I thank you that you demonstrated the fear of God. I pray that you would develop those two things in us right now, specifically those that feel called to leadership. Would you develop the fear of God in us, that we would have a healthy, holy fear of you, that we would not let that fall into uh, into the sidelines of our faith, Lord, but that everything would be developed under a fear of you. And I pray, Jesus, that you would develop in us faithfulness, starting in the small things, and I know that you'll answer that prayer because that's the only way you do it. Starting in the small things and building to the, the medium and then large things, Lord, Develop faithfulness in us, Lord. Help us know how to prioritize uh, and, and to focus and to live with margin, Jesus. Develop those in us, Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. If you want to have communion, make your way right through that. Do not go get your kids.